0: We are in Romans, uh, and I appreciate or I appreciate Hidardo uh, teaching last last Sunday night. Um, yeah, it's, I'm I'm trying to have Hidardo teach more and more, and and uh, give him some more opportunity and practice up here. And so I gave him some choices on teaching, and so he chose Romans eight uh, and f- to finish up Romans eight. And uh, that is a a wonderful, encouraging chapter. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into the Word tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We pray, dear God, that you might encourage our hearts. Lord, that we might be uh, just moved toward greater faith and a deeper faith in you as we interact with your Word. Teach us now, God. Give us understanding that we might be faithful to do your will and, and that we might honor you. In all, in all of our areas of our lives. We thank you, dear God, and we pray that you bless this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. The Armagosa Desert is located in Nye County, western Nevada. And it al- runs along the California Nevada border. Now, the desert is named after the Armagosa River, which was named after the Spanish word for bitter, because the, wa- the bitter taste of the water... Well, the following letter was found in a baking powder can wired to the handle of an old pump that offered the only hope of drinking water along on a very long and seldom used trail across Nevada's Armagosa Desert. This pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last five years, but the washer dries up, dries out, and the pump has got to be primed. Under the rock, I buried a bottle of water out of the sun and cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour about one-fourth and let her soak to wet the leather. Then pour in the rest medium fast and pump like crazy. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith when you get water u- watered up, fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller. Signed Desert Pete. P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump with it and you'll get all you can hold. I love that little message that Desert Pete left because certainly anybody who would come by has is put to the test on whether or not they need that water so bad. Do they trust that the pump will work? And uh, they, of course, they've got to prime up that pump uh, so it'll get moving and get pumping. Well, Tonight, I want to prime up the pump, so to speak, uh, before we get into the deep waters of Romans chapter 9. And uh, I, I want to say this, Romans chapter 7 is probably the most difficult chapter in the book to teach, and we've already gone through that. Romans chapter 8 is, to me, the most encouraging and comforting passage in the whole book. And then Romans chapter 9 is probably the most controversial chapter in the book. Now, I don't think it needs to be controversial. I think oftentimes that's an issue of our misunderstanding and misinterpretation. And so I hope that this evening as we get into Romans 9, it won't be such, uh, so controversial. But I want to prime the pump with a few verses because sometimes we read Romans chapter 9 uh, in isolation from the whole rest of the Bible. So let me share a few verses with you first to prime this pump. John three sixteen and 17. You guys might have heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Do you believe that? I, let me ask you again. Do you believe that? Amen. Okay. Let's go to the next verse. 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. It says, who desires, is speaking of God, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified into due time. Once again, let me ask you, do you believe that passage that God desires all men to be saved and that he gave his, his son as a ransom for all? Okay, Matthew 11:28 through 30 says, "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Do you believe that the Lord invites you to come to him? I, I think that's a really important understanding. And the last verse to prime this pump of many, and there's many more, but we can't fit them all into tonight, is Revelation 22.17. It says, And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take, take the water of life freely. Now, with that said, we're going to get into Romans 9. And as I said before, it's one of the most controversial chapters of the Bible. Uh, I, uh, whenever I've had someone call me with a Bible question and they say, uh, I was reading Romans. Wait a minute, hold on, Romans 9? How did you know, Pastor? <laughs> and, and, and I just don't understand it. It just doesn't sound fair. And, and so we're going to get into that, but I want to make sure we read it with the context Of the gospel, because again, Paul in Romans one through seven has been laying out the work of Christ for us, and in eight, the assurance of salvation that our hope is in Him. And of course, we ended Romans chapter eight last week with, "Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us." For I am persuaded that neither death. Nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful end to chapter 8. I mean, how encouraging is that, that nothing in all creation, uh, nothing at all can separate you from your Savior from the love of God. There's nothing in all creation. But as we enter into Romans chapter 9, I want you to understand that Paul is answering some questions. Actually, some anticipated questions. He, and, and what he is not answering is he is not answering how salvation works. That's important that we understand this. That Paul is not giving you the answers for the process of how God works salvation. He's answering questions of, what about Israel? What does it mean for Israel that they had missed the Messiah? What does it say about God? What does it say uh, uh, about our, pre- our present position in God? You see, when we read Romans 8, thir- 8 and we see that, wow, how can anyone fail If God is for us, then who can be against us when we have that understanding of Romans 8? But then we think back to to Israel and go, wait a minute, hold on. Did did God's word fail them? And we start asking that question, but how how did they miss the Messiah? Um, uh, Now it seems that they've rejected God and, and are cursed. And will God reject and curse me one day? And so that's where Paul is going with Romans 9 through 11. We're getting the answer about Israel, okay? And no, God will not curse you one day, and God will not reject you one day. Uh, and, and that's part of the assurance of what Romans 8 gave to us. So with that said, let's get into verse 1. Verse 1 says, I tell you the truth in Christ I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came. Who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, as we get into this first part of the passage, verses one through five, you can almost hear the anguish in Paul's voice concerning his own countrymen, the, 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 his fellow Israelites, uh, as he pins this letter. Uh, I mean, think about the concern and the grief that he has for him. And I'll tell you this this is actually right off the bat a wonderful model for us. And it's an application right out of the gate that we can get. The way Paul is concerned for his own countrymen, that they might be saved, that they might have salvation, uh, that they might not miss out on the opportunity of their Messiah. I think that of all the things that we could be concerned for, moved to prayer, motivated to, to share the gospel. We should take this from Paul, this attitude and this heart for the lost, for our own countrymen, you know, a lot of times in America, and I think it's, or in America, I think that there is, has been a, uh, a, a an ideology, uh, a worldview that has, has infiltrated into the church, and it's poisonous, and we've all just kind of adopted it, and that's the whole idea of, it's all about me, and it's really, the only one that matters is me, My personal peace and my personal affluence and, you know, it doesn't really matter what anybody else is doing or saying or whatever. I don't care. It's about me. And I think we're seeing the effect of that attitude as our culture withers away into immorality. As the culture is dying and as the culture is embracing things that they ought not to, as the culture is losing love for others... And we, we, we lose that ability to just be good neighbors to one another. And uh, we've lost that Judeo-Christian values that we had. Now more than ever, we the church should have a heart and a desire for the lost in our neighborhoods, for the lost in our workplaces, for the lost in our families. We should have a great desire for them just as Paul does for Israel how concerned he is for Israel, now Paul actually brings up a good point here in his grief. Verse three says, "For I could wish that I myself were a cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh." of course he's saying, "Oh, how painful it is for me to see them if it, I could almost wish that I could trade places. But verse four he says, "Who are Israelites? to whom pertain? Now look at this list, the adoption, the glory." The covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So he gives this incredible list of spiritual heritage that Israel has. Now, I don't know how far back your spiritual heritage goes. I know in my family... I know that my parents passed down a spiritual heritage to me, and I intend every every much to to pass down a spiritual heritage to my kids. Uh, if if I if my kids are at my memorial service and they speak about me, I hope that they'll say a couple things: one, that I love Jesus Christ; that I love the Lord God; and two, that I love them. You know what? If my if my kids testify at my memorial to those two things, I did it. <laughs> I passed on the spiritual heritage, and and, uh, and I, I really expressed to them those the two most important things to love. Well, uh, here Paul talks about their heritage, and he says the adoption. That that that's incredible that Israel had this in their heritage. Exodus four twenty two. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord: Israel is my son, my firstborn." God adopted Israel. He made them his his, his, his people, his child, his son, the glory uh, Paul mentions. Now, this is incredible when we think about this because to no other nation did God adopt and to no other nation did God show his glory. Uh, we see this uh, in the wilderness in Exodus 16.10. Now, it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they that looked toward the wilderness and behold The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I mean, I think it's awesome that God delivered Israel out of Egypt with mighty miracles, wonderful works. But even more so, then he showed his glory, his presence manifested physically among the children of Israel. And we see that happen in the tabernacle. And we see it happen later on in Israel's history that there were manifestations of God's glory for them, for the, for the people of Israel. The covenants, Paul mentions, to, to them these wonderful covenants, these promises that were, uh, that, that, that were based in God were given to Israel. What covenants? Well, I mean, just to name a few, we have the covenant made with Abraham where God called Abraham to go to the land that he would show him and he will bless him and he will curse those who curse them and and he will provide children and heirs to Abraham. More so than that, he even added on a land covenant that there were going to be borders to this land that he was giving to Abraham. And then, of course, we had the covenant given to Moses, that covenant at Sinai, which we'll come back to in just a moment. And then the covenant given to David, that God will place an heir of David on the throne. And this, this is going to happen. I, I mean, a beautiful covenant there. That what about the new covenant given in Jeremiah 31, where God promises a covenant in which he'll put the law on their hearts. And, of course, we experience that in Jesus Christ, but Israel's not experiencing that. And then Paul mentions the giving of the law. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. That was in Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 2, where they began to read through the law with the people of Israel. And, of course, he said, and even the service of God. Just consider... The idea, if we got rid of all the other things, it was to Israel given the service of God. Israel was the one who was allowed to offer sacrifices to the eternal God. Israel was the one who was allowed to intercede through these offerings in the temple and minister before God. It was to Israel that God had given the dimensions of the and, and the, the plans for the fixtures within the temple and given them the instructions on sacrifice. To no other nation did God give that. It was only to Israel that they might have understanding of what it takes for forgiveness and redemption, uh, what it takes for for the atonement to happen. And then the promises. Oh, so many promises throughout Scripture. Too many to name. All the promises of God. Think back to promises made even th- uh, through the, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch. Promises made through the prophets. Promises all the way, through, the promises of, the, of Messiah. All the many promises of God that he made. And then to them, the fathers. Now this is, this is also an important one. This this is one I think we can often identify with, whether you're uh, uh, generational as far as a believer that you've come to Christ and and it's something your parents have passed down to you, and, and you've received Christ yourself and become born again, or or maybe you're the first one who's born again, and this is you, you have that desire that your children would also know Christ, or or maybe your your uh, your so-called spiritual children, but. But we see that he mentions the fathers and the spiritual legacy that makes Israel's unbelief even harder to understand, and and, and most of all, that from these fathers Christ came. Right? And, and you know the genealogies in the Bible that we follow, we, we read them and 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 halfway through, as you're reading your genealogies in your quiet time, you're dozing off or you're thinking about something else, and then you come back to oh, what was I reading? You know. Well, those genealogies have a great purpose because those genealogies always are narrowing down to the line of Christ. When Christ comes, the genealogies end. And and, and it's all about Jesus Christ. But to the fathers, that, that those whom Christ came through, uh, the Messiah. But all these things make it hard to even understand Israel's unbelief. And, you know, uh, I, I've seen this before when, Especially when I was a youth pastor, we would see a, a kid who was kind of a, a, a lukewarm Christian, a, you know, a, a kid who's numb. They, they grew up in church, they're coming to church, they're coming to youth group, but they haven't really met the Lord Jesus Christ, so they haven't become born again. And they bring in a friend who's a total unbeliever. And the friend starts hearing the gospel, and they start responding, and they just get set on fire for the Lord. They're just so hungry for the word of God. And the friend is kind of like, uh, the, the one who's now become born again is asking their friend, like, how could you be so lukewarm about this? How could you ignore all these things? They don't even understand it because they see that they're... they're, they're numb church friend ha- has had a, a, a legacy and a heritage of hearing these things. And for them, it's the the, the greatest news, the richest text that, that one could ever imagine. And they just don't understand how the, that one who grew up in the church could just not hear it and not care about it so much. And that's kind of where Paul is coming from. That he just doesn't, it, it's hard to understand Israel's unbelief. And so, I want to take just a moment here and call your attention back to verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, uh, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, did you catch that there? Christ, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. That's the issue. That's, That's the big issue right there. Israel has rejected Messiah. They've rejected him as God. That, that is the, the, one, of the, one of the great problems of Israel. They haven't received him as the eternally blessed God. Listen, we cannot receive Jesus as a good teacher. We cannot receive Jesus as a, as a wise counselor alone. We have to receive him as God, eternally blessed God. That's who he is. And to reject his, his deity is to reject him. I mean, can you imagine just for a moment if someone came to you to speak to you about your spouse and said, well, you know, I just don't like, I don't like everything about them. I, I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they sound. Their voice, it's annoying. I don't like even the things that they say, everything they say I hate. And, and they're coming to you to talk to you about this. Do you feel that they're insulting you as well? You should if you're married. That's, that's the way that should feel. Uh, y- you should be like, no, hey, listen, you reject my spouse, you reject me. That's the way that works. We're married. God has brought us together. And so for, for someone to, to reject the deity of God, they might as well reject God himself. You cannot say, well, you know, I believe Jesus was a, a good moral teacher, but not God. I believe Jesus was a good a, a good counselor, a good example, but he's not God. No, no. You either receive him as God or you reject him altogether. All right, let's go to verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Hold on, I'm going to take a drink here. Let me back up for one minute. Okay, this is the question that Paul is now answering. Did God's word fail Israel? That's the question. Verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Okay, so there's your answer. No, it did not fail. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But... In Isaac, your seed shall be called in quote. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed for this is the word of promise at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's Romans 9 six through nine. And so Paul, Thinks of someone looking at Israel and saying, God's word didn't come, uh, th- come through for them. God's word in some way failed them. He didn't fulfill his promise for them because they missed their Messiah. And now they're cursed. Do you, do you understand where Paul is coming from on this? And, and and certainly that would have an impact on us if if I were to tell you that yeah, God saves, God fulfills his promises, but then we have an example where he didn't fulfill his promise, right? I just spent Sunday morning today uh, going through the first part of Daniel 11, and there's some 135 prophecies fulfilled just in Daniel 11. They were already fulfilled, and it was a little bit of a, a labor for us to get through it this morning, but but also it was incredible to see the faithfulness and the... Uh, the detail of which God fulfills what he speaks ahead in history, and so if but if we were to see that God gave a, told us some promise or prophesied something and yet it didn't happen, well we would say, well god's hit or miss here I'm not going to depend on him for everything and so Paul's asking this question, and of course his response is no way uh he didn't uh He didn't fulfill his promise for them because uh, they, uh, sorry, how, how do I know he will come through for me? When we start to ask that question, we can see that God did actually fulfill all of his promises. Here's Paul's answer. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. Okay, now wait a minute. What are we talking about here? If they're born of Abraham, if they're a Jew, doesn't that make them an Israelite? Doesn't that make them of Israel? And Paul's about to say, no, that's not what makes them an Israel. Look at his example. Nor are they all called children because they are the seed of Abraham. And then Paul gives a quotation here. He says, Is not, uh, is in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Uh, Chuck Smith says, Paul tells us that no one is truly Israel. Unless he is governed by God. Uh, we have a parallel situation with the word Christian. Not everyone who's called a Christian is truly a follower of Christ. And there's a really good example of that. That it, uh, uh, an Israelite is to be governed by God. So, Abraham, uh, so Paul says, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham, if you remember, had two sons born to him two sons born of the flesh, two sons with his DNA in them. But but only one of those sons was Israel. Only one of those sons was was the the sovereign choice of God. So what is the difference between the two sons? Well, it's not an issue of the mother. And it's not an issue of the sire, the father. The, The issue is the one of the promise. That's the answer. The one who was promised to Abraham. The sovereign choice of God is what makes the difference. So when we speak about the sovereign choice of God, I want to caution you not to think based in someone's potentiality or in their works or that God is somehow totally subjective in the way he makes choices, okay. Those It's all wrong ideas, okay. So we, we're not going to go there because you and I are not God. And we cannot understand. His ways are far higher than our ways. Uh, it's, it's hard for us to even understand that he would save us, <laughs> that he would redeem us on that cross. So how in the world am I going to understand how God makes choices, okay. We're not going to go there. We just know what it's not. We know that God doesn't choose based on works and we're going to see that in just a moment. And we know that God doesn't choose based on potentiality, uh, the potentiality for someone being a really great individual. We'll see that in just a moment. Um, and we also know that God is not totally subjective. It's not random random picks that he picks. Galatians 6.16, Paul makes a reference. And he said, and as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon The Israel of God. This is interesting because we want to ask ourselves who is Paul speaking of when he says, Upon the Israel of God? There are some who interpret this to be all those who are believers in Christ. It's just a spiritual Israel of God. But others interpret it as no, this is speaking about the church and those believers of Israel, those who are born again in Israel and have trusted in Messiah. I tend to hold to the latter because this is the only place in Scripture where Paul speaks this way. And so it would be weird for him to start using that terminology to apply to the church. I think he's speaking to both groups here as he finishes the word of Galatian. And and all this is to say that God is not replacing Israel with the church. He he's not done with Israel. Israel can the, the true Israel of God, the the true one is the one who's the child, who believes in the promise, the one who has trusted in Messiah. So Paul responding to the popular Jewish view of election here holds that uh, and, and and the popular view of Jewish election is that basically if you were Born of Abraham, you're a part of the covenant. And it was renewed through Moses at Sinai. So as long as you don't separate yourself from Moses by, like, renouncing the law and renouncing Judaism, you're in. You're you're good. You're saved. It doesn't matter anything else at that point. Because just because you're a Jew, you have salvation. And I love N.T. Wright has a quote about this. He says... What counts is grace, not race. And I think that's so important. What counts is grace, not race. And so, so Paul is here arguing that, no, just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean that you're, you're the Israel of God. It doesn't mean that you have salvation. Salvation is for those who believe in God, who are children of the promise. There's a spiritual heritage there. Uh, for for of of uh, Israel, and that is who uh, who the the ones who trust the Messiah they are the true Israel of God. now, by the way, where are we going with this Again, remember I said romans ten nine ten and eleven are all unit uh, we 're going to see when we get to chapter eleven that there's going to be a great revival. Of Israel, of of the the physical Israel, will receive Messiah, and that'll be coming uh, once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Once God does His harvesting of the Gentile church, we'll get to that though. But but God God has not just replaced Israel. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Now, Paul is going to give us a second example of this idea of sovereign choice in verses ten through thirteen. And this is just in case someone would argue that Isaac and Ishmael had two different mothers. You know, they might say, well, wait a minute. Isaac and Ishmael had two mothers. So one was Egyptian and Sarai was the one with Abraham who the promise was given to. So that, that was the issue. So he gets into verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil... That the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Uh, <clears throat> so, once again, as I, sp- I spoke earlier, that God's sovereign choice is na- not based in us. And, and here Paul kind of reiterates that as he said, these children not even yet being born... They hadn't even done any good or evil. There it, it was no even ability yet to keep the law, right? They, they, they're just in the womb. God had made a sovereign choice of them. And uh, and uh, I, I read a quote here from uh, Charles Spurgeon. He said uh, a woman once came up to him and said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon replied, "It's it's not... Uh the, the fact that he hated Esau is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And isn't that true? When we look at Esau and Jacob, we actually see that Jacob is kind of a conniving guy. I'd, I'd be a little bit afraid to be friends with Jacob. Uh, and, of course, it, it's not about how you start. It's all about how you end. And we know that Jacob ended really well. In fact, uh, Jacob becomes the most mentioned name in all the Bible, right, Israel. Uh, he's given the name Israel. And so Jacob Jacob is given great honor by God in the end. But still, when we, when we learn about Jacob, we're kind of like, huh, I don't know about this guy. But, but still the text says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And now this is where people start to get sidetracked. They start to say, wait a minute. I don't know, this This is hard for me to read. Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated, I thought God was a God of love. Remember all those scriptures we primed the pump with earlier? Okay, that's why we primed the pump, because we're getting here. And, and I don't want you to read this in isolation from the whole rest of the gospel. This is quoted from Malachi 1, 2 through 5. And I want to bring you there for a moment so we can read it together in context. So in context, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi, and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now, let me pause there for a moment. Remember, Israel is under the judgment of God, okay? Israel has, uh, and Edom, or Esau, have been uh, taken out by Babylon, and they are experiencing that judgment, okay? And so so that, that's where we're at here. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved. Verse 3. Uh, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said we have been impoverished. But we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. And so what God is saying to Israel here is that Edom, Esau, they, they also worship false gods. They also did wicked, just like Israel. The difference is with Israel, I made a covenant with. And so rather than leave you laid waste, rather than leaving you in destruction, I'm bringing you back. I'm fulfilling my covenants with you. But Esau, I'm not. They're gone. I'm wiping them out. They're done. They're going to say, we'll build up, and I'm going to throw it down. They are finished because I didn't make covenants with them. Okay, so in the first context of the verse in Malachi 1 2 through 5, we, we see that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated is not the same idea of an emotional hatred towards something, okay? Uh, we we want to make sure we understand it. We're, we're talking about a, 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 a choice to bless this one and a choice not to bless that one. That, that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not blessing, I've, I've called Jacob, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Both Israel and Edom received judgment, both. Uh, but yet God is going to restore Israel. Uh, he blessed both. Now when we go back to Jacob and Esau before Malachi, Malachi is kind of speaking of them corporately uh, as nations. But let's back all the way up to Jacob and Esau. God blessed both Jacob and Esau. And uh, Jacob was, was used in a more positive and basic way in the furtherance of God's plans. But, uh, uh, but when we speak about hatred, we're, we're, not, we're, we're not speaking so much of, of this emotional hatred. Because we know with Esau, God actually blessed Esau richly. Esau was, when, when, when Jacob returns, Esau is, uh, one, he's been blessed with the ability to forgive his brother for stealing the birthright. Two, he's flourishing, his family's flourishing, his flocks are flourishing. Esau's doing really well. God has absolutely blessed Esau. But but it was to Jacob that God chose to all the promises and the heritage and the Messiah through, not to Esau. So when we speak about hatred... I don't even want to say less love there because that's not what we're speaking about, but we could translate it as reject that that God has rejected Esau for the for his sovereign choice for his promises, and, and that that is through Jacob that he chose. So when we speak about this, we don't want to attach it with this idea that oh. Uh, God is speaking about that, you know, there's just some that God just absolutely hates. He just hates you, I'm sorry, you know, that's it. That's not even, that's not even at all, it would be twisting scripture to do that. It's really about God's sovereign choice here. And that's what it is, that God gets to choose. Um, And God loves the whole world, but at the same time, he withholds his love as far as action goes or election from some. And that's, that's just God's sovereign choice. It doesn't mean that, that people don't have, that they can't uh, receive the gospel message. It, it just, God makes that sovereign choice. And that's pretty much all I want to say about that before I get myself in trouble. All right. Verse 14. Uh, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Okay. That's for those who would say, but that's not fair. Okay? Uh, and so that's what Paul is saying. What, what should we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? If you want to claim, that's not fair. Uh, and how are you basing that, that it's not fair? Okay? Uh, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. Okay, so as we get into this passage of of, uh, Romans 9, 14 through 18, we see that God is not obligated to show mercy or favor, Paul is quoting here from exodus thirty three nineteen and uh, I think you understand this too that you 're also not obligated to show mercy or favor to everyone you 're not there 's no obligation. you can do something kind for somebody and you 're not obligated to go do it for the whole world. You, you can go down and, and, and uh, to the riverbed and meet a homeless person there and bless them with lunch. But that doesn't mean you're obligated for every every homeless person to give them lunch either, are you? No, and it doesn't even mean that you made a choice based on appearance, looks, or ability, or whatever the case is. You're free and you're imperfect to do that. So who are you to tell God that He has to choose everybody the same or or, or give this this uh, uh, this uh, is obligated to show mercy to each and every one? He's not. Now, obviously God has shown great mercy and love for us. But we understand that God is under no obligation from his creation. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love. Didn't we read that at the beginning? We primed the pump with that. And that's why we did that. (laughs) Because God loves but he 's not obligated anywhere, and we shouldn 't tell God that we shouldn 't say that God is obligated. His mercy does not depend on man 's desire or effort psalm one sixteen thirteen I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the lord that 's really what we want to do when we hear of the uh, of god 's wonderful gospel. we want to receive it we want to respond to it we don 't want to ignore it and uh, I remember talking to a friend in college and I was sharing with him the gospel, and he he just dearly loved his parents, his family, obviously as everyone should. And um, he he said, "Well, I don't know that I want to I want to receive Jesus. Uh, I like the the he, we had some Mormon friends too. I like the Mormon view that that uh, my parents can be saved through me. I can go big and get baptized for them." And I said, "But but you won't be saved. You're not believing in Jesus Christ. You're not really being born again and forgiven of your sins. You're." You're believing in a, in a, in a false Jesus and, and, a, and you're believing in a false system uh, because that's, the Mormons believe it's, it's really by works, after grace, by grace after all you can do. And as I sh- was sharing with him, I said it, what it comes down to is your response. You have to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his love and receive him and receive that forgiveness. Sure, go share it with your parents, but it really comes down to how you will receive him. And so, I want to take you to a passage here, a parable, and we're going to end with this tonight in Matthew chapter 20, uh, Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to start at verse 1. Let me get over there here. And this will illustrate the idea of sovereignty and, and, without, and freedom of obligation. Okay. Okay. Let me take a drink here. Matthew 20, starting at verse 1. Do you have that, Garrett? Yeah, you do? Okay. So Jesus tells this parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, a denaria a day, he sent Them into his vineyard, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went again. He went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Okay, so this vineyard owner is looking for laborers, and he's got labor. And so he goes out, and he starts hiring people for the day. And the first group he agrees with on a wage. He tells them, look, I'll give you a denarii for the whole day, which is a day's wage. And and then they said, great, we're in. We'll go work. And then throughout the day, he keeps finding more and more people. And, uh, and uh, all the way, to, almost to the very end of the day, he's finding people and saying, come work for me. And, and he, of course, those ones who come later, he says, whatever I think is fair, I'll give to you. Okay. And they decide to go work for him. That makes sense. We can understand that. So verse 8 says, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last of the first. And when those who came were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarii. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarii. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of, and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denari? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish you to I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. This gives us a little more understanding. That the, the landowner. Just decides, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to give them all a day's wage. Even the one that only worked one hour. You know what, I'm just going to give it to them. Now, you, you can see the, the coveting heart of those who started at the beginning. They're watching everybody get paid and they're like, oh man, this is going to be a big payday. The guy who only worked an hour got a full denari. We're going to get more counting their chickens before they hatch. And they're thinking about all that they're going to get. And so when they get up there to get their pay, they get the one. And they're now they're outraged. Hey, this isn't fair. I'm only going to ignore Well, this is what you agreed to. This is what you chose to do. But that's not fair. It's not lawful. What do you mean it's not lawful? I can do what I want with my money. They're my possessions. I can just give them away to people if I want. And and, uh, and so Jesus uses this parable to help us understand the kingdom of heaven. That that That... That God is going to call, <laughs> many are called, few chosen. The last will be first and the first last. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful parable that helps us understand this idea. And I think, I think that this parable really helps us understand Romans a little bit better, Romans 9, because it's not, certainly not a lack of love or care, but rather God's sovereign choice to to, to, to uh, minister and save whom he will. Now, I want to con- you to consider this too. I know like me, you have unsaved family and friends. And I know like me, you desire that they should be saved. And I know like me that if they have a deathbed confection- confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they believe in him on his deathbed, You're not going to go complaining. Hey, I've been following Christ for 10 years. That's not fair. You're not going to do that because you're going to be so moved that they now get to experience that wonderful eternal life that you and I, of course, you and I get the benefit and the pleasure of serving the master in his vineyard (laughs) all this extra time. We get the benefit of being with him, walking with him, depending upon him now. Uh, there's so many uh, great benefits in knowing Christ now versus just on your deathbed, but certainly we wouldn't go complaining about it and say it's not fair, God, that you didn't sh- that, that they received you on their deathbed and 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 I received you 20 years earlier, or whatever the case is. So we we can see that we have no position to claim not fair when God makes a sovereign choice. Now again, I want to I want to reiterate that we're speaking about. Israel. We're asking questions about Israel, and we're we're helping us understand that God will not fail us, and He has not failed Israel. Okay, that's important as we go into next week. Next week we'll continue on in Romans nine, and uh, we'll probably finish nine next week, and then get into ten the following week. But all all along, here's what I want to encourage you with as we leave here. That um, if God is for us, from Romans 8, who can be against us? Um, our God is so faithful and he cares for us so dearly, he will not fail us. And you can believe that. You can trust in him for that. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, that you're not like men. Lord, that you're not like us. God, we... we can't even begin to understand how you work and who you show mercy to and and who you bear with, Lord, we just give you all the praise and the thanks for the wonderful grace that that we've experienced in you. We thank you, Lord. We want to pray for our unsaved loved ones. We want to bring them before you right now, and if you have a friend, a, a, a brother, a sister, a mother or father, any of those who are unsaved, you pray for them right now. Lord, save. Lord, we ask that you would use us in their lives, Lord, that they might have ears to hear your wonderful gospel message. Use us as ambassadors. Lord, we also want to confess the times when we haven't been burdened for the lost around us, Lord, that we haven't had a heart like yours. Lord, how can we complain about how you love? You sent your son to die for us and and we, and we we get lazy with the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, for that, for even questioning your goodness. Lord, we love you so much and we're thankful that you're so good to us. Let us be faithful to you. Strengthen us up. We, we just give you all the praise and all the glory be to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to end with uh, the benediction from First John as the apostle shares with the church. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen.